be seated. Well, this morning we considered from Acts chapter 2 how every day is to be a day of Pentecost, how that great event was not uh, some one-off day in the history of redemption, although there were some special things clearly about it. But what we find is a pattern and a promise to be fulfilled throughout this age as the gospel goes forth in the power of the Holy Spirit from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria, even to the uttermost parts of the earth. Um, I promise not to sidestep the matter of speaking in tongues and the uh, related wonders and signs mentioned here. And so, uh, in what's frankly more teaching than preaching in so many ways, I'd like to speak to you also again from Acts chapter 2 about how every Christian truly is to be a Pentecostal and how we might understand the phenomenon that in so many ways is sweeping and has swept the world. Back from Acts chapter 2, I read to you much of this this morning, and so I would like to just take together with you um, the first part of chapter 2. Let's read from chapter 2, verse 1. And when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And they were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. And they were all amazed and marveled saying to one another, look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in his own language in which we were born? Parthians, Medes, and the Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them speaking in our own tongues, the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? Others mocking said, they're full of new wine. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words, for these are not drunk, as you suppose. It is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will Pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great an awesome day of the Lord, and it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Amen. Let's do that once more. Our Father in heaven, we do call upon you as those who have been saved and delivered from the wrath to come. We pray that you would give us further instruction in your word 
that in this day, admittedly, uh, division and confusion, that uh, we might so continue to press forward according to your word, teach us your ways, and make our time together to be profitable in every life. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I mentioned recently, today in the Middle East, one of the most common reasons given for Muslims coming to Christ is a dream or a vision of Jesus. Surely this has happened at some time in the past, but never uh, in the history of the world has such a scale been seen. According to some research by a man named Kostin Bader, he believes that over one million of such dreams and visions have occurred since the year 2000, extrapolating out from a survey. And my friend who works with Muslims now regularly, he, uh, sorry, he works with Muslims, comma, he now regularly asks them, uh, just as a normal course, have you ever had a dream of Jesus? And he often gets the surprised answer, why, yes. Why do you ask? It's, it's a thing. Uh, we, we find um, old men dreaming dreams. This is now even on the news, by the way, a, a good bit. Uh, Newsweek had an article, 2019, why more Muslims are turning to Jesus. Uh, the Washington Times two years earlier had an article. Uh, let me just read you a bit. Uh, Muslims in the Middle East are turning to Jesus in unprecedented numbers. Before the war, it was rare that a Muslim would become a follower of Jesus Christ, but the war has changed everything. About three months ago, said one person, I was given a vision of Jesus Christ. Uh, this woman named Rasha, she shares, I was sleeping and all of a sudden I saw Jesus Christ in white. I said, he said, I am Christ. You will have a beautiful daughter. I was eight months pregnant, and a month later, we received our beautiful daughter. At about the same time, her husband, Amir, had a dream too. I saw Jesus Christ. He was dressed in white. He said to me, I am your Savior. You will follow me. Both Amir and Rasha made a bold decision after these dreams. Quote, we decided to follow him, and we named our baby Christina. But our clan is very big, and we are afraid now that they might kill us. The uh, article went on to give several more illustrations of this phenomenon, which uh, I'm pretty open to. There are countless testimonies like this in the books and on the Internet. You can, for example, read Nabil Qureshi's book, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus, for an extended account of a very intelligent man, uh, who worked for some time as a doctor and also with Ravi Zacharias in Canada, about how he left Islam, well, after being persuaded of the truth of Christianity, but ultimately it was dreams and visions that put him over the edge. Um, are these good reasons to follow Jesus? And what should we make of these things in light of verse 17? Your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams. Is this... Uh, phenomenon, something that we should be expecting, and what does that mean for us today? What about miracles? We might also ask in light of verse 19, where the Lord says, I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath. You know, in China today, one of the most cited reasons for conversion to Christ is the occurrence of miracles, especially related to hearing. Or we could even go back to the ancient times, and if you ask, 
Why did Christianity spread so rapidly in the Roman Empire? Among the many answers that could be given, the church fathers do note that a great many were converted after receiving or witnessing some miracle, particularly of healing. Or what about speaking in tongues, we might ask, given the nature of this chapter, which Peter says in verse 16 is simply the fulfillment of what Joel had prophesied would happen in the last days, in which we are now finding ourselves. And the question then is not just abstractly, but should we be speaking in tongues? And what does all this mean? Now, uh, Pentecostalism has gone from zero adherence in 1901 to approaching a billion today. Uh, an astonishing number, and we, we have to say, uh, um, we, we sort of uh, now sheepishly, could, could so many people be wrong? Are, are, are we wrong? Are, are we somehow quenching the spirit? What are we missing out on in so many ways? Well, I have some other research here about the great spread of this throughout denominations and so forth. Maybe I shouldn't weary you with all that, but it's a, it's a big deal. My, my, my friend goes regularly to Brazil. He says in the last 25 years of going there, it was, it was 25 years ago, all Roman Catholic churches. Now, as he drives into the country to see his family, uh, far, far more uh, independent, charismatic Pentecostal churches than ever Roman Catholic churches there, there were. It's, it's just a visible change in the global South in so many ways. Well, that's the topic for this evening. It's a very broad topic. I've spoken on it before in various ways. I, I would like to try to give you some new understanding or some material to understand what's going on. Um, you'll know my own background a little from this morning as I talked about uh, kind of uh, Pentecostal church I grew up in, the Assemblies of God I was a part of then as a new Christian, and my own searching for these matters. And I'd like to tell you a little more of the story, um, but not my story, but what's, what's happened in the world? I mean, how, how is it that we have gone to nearly one billion people? That is to say, ne nearly, what, one in every 20 people on the face of the earth as a Pentecostal charismatic uh, believer in Christ, what, what happened? Well, the modern movement actually began in 1828 in Scotland, you might be shocked to know, as a minister named Edward Irving came to believe that the spiritual gifts of the apostles in every particular belonged to the church of all ages, speaking in tongues, prophesying, healing the sick. If they were not being seen, it was clearly a lack of faith. Preaching both, by the way, uh, millenarianism, that is to say the premillennial soon coming of our Lord Jesus, and miracles and other things, Irving began to write prolifically that the coming of Christ was imminent, that the Lord's coming would be preceded by the outpouring of apostolic gifts, and the first known case of speaking in tongues was in London, 8, April 20, 1831, in the modern movement. He was thrown out of the Church of Scotland in 1832. He founded the Catholic Apostolic Church and appointed 12 apostles, believed to be instruments of the Holy Spirit with authority. His conferences were jam-packed. It was electric as the prophecies went forth of what was soon to come to the world. 
But the last of those apostles died in 1901, uh, and the movement trailed off and didn't have that much of a global impact. The, the modern Pentecostal movement in earnest did not begin then until 1901 in a kind of restart. As a former Methodist minister named Charles Parham, he'd, he'd opened a Bible college in Kansas. And just before Christmas, he told his students, on break, study the Bible and learn what evidence there was be for being baptized in the Holy Spirit and come back with your answers to me in three days. And upon his return, he was amazed to discover that all 40 of his students had come to the same conclusion, that the baptism of the Spirit, specifically speaking in tongues as the indisputable proof of the blessing of Pentecost, was for the church. The young people actively began to pray and to seek a baptism of the Holy Spirit manifested by speaking in tongues. And so it was early in the morning, January 1st, 1901, that Miss Agnes Osmond began to speak in tongues as Param laid his hands on her. And soon the other students began to speak also, and Param joined them, and the modern Pentecostal movement has begun. From that little beginning in a Bible college in Kansas, in Kansas, a movement has swept the world, particularly these days, as I say, in the global south. Parham, after a couple years, he started a newsletter, which greatly increased the exposure of, of what was happening. And again, the response was electric. Um, if you'd give me leave, I know it's kind of a long introduction tonight, uh, to just read a, a couple of brief articles from, that, from the early days of that paper called Apostolic Faith. Brother and sister, A.G. Gar, former leaders in Los Angeles, were powerfully baptized with the Holy Ghost and received the gift of tongues, especially the language of India and its dialects. Brother Gar was able to pray a native of India through his own language, the Bengali. Sister Gar also spoke Chinese. They left Los Angeles for the East in July to go by way of Chicago to Danville, Virginia. You're like, Danville, Virginia? Danville, Virginia. Early center. In a letter from Brother Gar, we learn that God is honoring his precious gospel in a marvelous way, reclaiming and sanctifying and filling with the Holy Ghost nearly all the members of the old Burning Bush band, musical group. The brother writes that when they spoke in tongues, the people had such confidence in their Pentecostal baptism that those who were such, that is baptized in the Spirit, were immediately healed. All right. Um, read you a little more in a minute, but we see some of those early things just coming out. This is the first exposure so many people have had. Their speaking in tongues has been revived in the church. Uh, the languages of Bengali, of China, uh, these being apparently verified by the uh, immigrants or expatriates there. Uh, healing, also attending, attending the Pentecostal baptism and... Um, the, uh, the joyful reception of these things by, by others. Um, October, same year. On the Gar preparation for leaving to India while at Danville, Virginia, name of the article, one girl received the baptism Friday night as she spoke in German. God sent us a German to interpret. He said he could understand everything perfectly. Sister Jenny Eans also had received the German language and speaks it fluently. Sister Gar improves every day in her Tibetan and Chinese. 
Oh, how I pray that God, pray God that he ever gave us, I praise God that he ever gave us this wonderful experience of baptism with the Holy Ghost. The folks fall under the power of God at a great time is on here. The church was packed twice yesterday, an altar overflowing with seekers. One saved man was sanctified in the afternoon meeting and in the evening meeting received the baptism with the Holy Ghost and spake in tongues and magnified God. Uh, well, you say, wow, a tremendous number of, of languages. And you think, what, what, what are they supposed to do with the language? I mean, what would you do if you suddenly had the, the gift of perfect Mandarin or Bengali or some other language? You say, well, it's clearly a call, is it not? And this is how it was taken. Alfred Gar, along with his wife, at the uh, Agar that I mentioned earlier, Lillian, um, who uh, received some of the first fruits of the Blessing of Tongues in 1906, they left as missionaries to spread the Christian message uh, abroad and with the Pentecostal distinctives. And um, it was taken as a sign for missionary service. And so they set off for Calcutta, Kolkata, to fulfill the supernatural event. Uh, when he arrived in India, he found that his supernatural ability to speak Bengali did not reappear. Um, you see, the Azusa Street Revival, uh, I, I'll say it charitably, had the belief that the very miracle of Acts was being replicated, that people were speaking in the various languages of the people and, and took this as a divine sign that they should go to, into all the world and preach. Um, Another, another woman went to China, and apparently there were no Chinese people on the boat. When she got there, she, she realized, to her astonishment, that what she was speaking was not Chinese, as, as she had been told back in Azusa. Um, things then uh, changed within a year or two. Those kind of newsletters were not going out. And you think, well, well what was happening? Why were they so confidently declaring miracles, verified miracles, verified by many people in many languages, uh, only to find out that these things didn't continue? It, it was uh, a concern. In 1959, something happened at St. Mark's Episcopal Church in Van Nuys, California. Suddenly, in an Episcopal church, not a Pentecostal church. For the first time, a group began praying for the gift of speaking in tongues, which they soon did. And a quiet movement soon spread to 70 people in that church. The following year, Father Dennis Bennett, the priest, announced to his congregation that he too had received the fullness of the Holy Spirit and was now speaking in unknown tongues. And at the end of the second service, his assistant priest pulled off his vestments, put them on the altar and said, I'm not going to work with this man anymore. Uh, we, we see the beginning of what's called the charismatic movement, where in the mainline churches, the gift of speaking in tongues uh, came quietly at first in the 1960s, began to split some churches, began to change other kinds of churches over, began an uneasy relationship with evangelical churches in some places as well. Um, but the movement grew. Uh, the priest Bennett was featured in Newsweek and Time magazine and on national news. And for a decade, his church became one of the major centers from which speaking in tongues would spread worldwide 
in mainline denominations, Presbyterians, Baptists, thousands began visiting from the world, conferences, organizations. Soon, millions of people in mainline churches experiencing the speaking in tongues and the spiritual manifestations associated with it. It began to spread to Roman Catholic and to Orthodox churches. It's now a major force in Roman Catholicism, especially to the delight of the current Pope. What are we to think? This is a long introduction to give you the story of what's happened in the world. The rise of the modern movement. Miracles given to attest those who speak for God, but but are they miracles? Uh, people speaking in other tongues, but is it the same as what we here have in the book of Acts? You see the dilemma, the dilemma which the Pentecostal movement itself has struggled with, even to the point these days of, you'll know it's very different than 30 years ago, nowadays de-emphasizing the gift of tongues as the distinctive demonstration of the baptism of the Spirit. Well, Miracles, we know, are often given to attest those who speak for God. Here we have in verse 22 in this chapter, Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs. A very, very common emphasis. It was in our first text. It's many times throughout the New Testament. If you come as a spokesman for God, prophesying mighty works, must come with you. Otherwise, you know that the man is not sent of God. Mighty works, which came, of course, on the day of Pentecost in this unusual way, not as we might have expected in a miracle of healing, but a miracle of speaking. And by the way, some people say, isn't this really a matter of hearing? Since people said, yeah, we, we hear each of us, um, the, the mighty works of God being, being declared in our, in our own tongue. Uh, uh, no, there's 120 people from the upper room that are now filling the streets, apparently speaking in such a great variety of languages. The emphasis of the passage is they spoke in other tongues as the, other, as the Holy Spirit gave them utterance. That They spoke as the Spirit gave them utterance in other languages, as the word can also easily be translated. So uh, not a matter of hearing, and of course you'll know later on too, it's the matter of speaking in other languages that confirm God's gift to the Gentiles and other, other things in the book of Acts. So a miracle of speaking, of prophesying, perfect Bengali, uh, perfect Urdu, uh, perfect, uh, uh, well, whatever the languages were at the time from uh, Parthians and Scythians and so forth, they all heard the perfect uh, praises of God being described. And the miracle arrested their attention. Those who understood what was happening, they wanted an explanation. They were sure that a miracle was taking place. And it was no fear on Peter's part to describe to them exactly what this meant and uh, what it required of them. Now, this is very important also because you know that as the Word of God comes, it has to come with a sign. This is a sign, a miraculous sign. If, if any of you today think that you have uh, this sign, I'd be very interested. But one thing is very clear in the Bible. When a miracle comes, nobody wonders whether or not it actually happened, right? Uh, biblical miracles are of such a... Uh, shocking and demonstrable character that they authenticate the messenger. 
Even the Lord's bitterest enemies couldn't deny what he did. They could only ascribe it to diabolical power or complain that he did it on the Sabbath or find some other fault in it. But that he did those works was beyond question. Even, by the way, a couple hundred years later, as the uh, uh, Jew- Jewish uh, traditions are then recorded in the Mishnah, there's this comment here about Jesus that growing up in Egypt, he learned some of the Egyptian magic arts, which is how he was able to do his miracles. Uh, that is to say, you know, even hundreds of years later, the Jewish apologetic is not that he didn't do them, but that he did them by diabolical power. Okay. So whatever you say about New Testament speaking in tongues or languages, it's clearly a supernatural phenomenon. It's said to be a sign in 1 Corinthians, a demonstration of divine power that astonished the people because it could not be explained in any natural way. That point is put front and center. The people here, Galileans all, uh, Galileans had a reputation for being unlearned, unlettered, these yokels, are all speaking perfect foreign languages. And they were utterly flummoxed at what was going on, a genuine miracle. I mean, uh, you know, when my uh, daughter Leah translates a uh, little bit of uh, Latin sentence correctly, I I think it's practically uh, a miracle, right? So anyway, all right, imagine these people speaking perfect grammatical Parthian, Assyrian, or Egyptian. And and, and this was... uh, was a problem with the modern phenomenon of tongues in some ways, it was having difficulty convincing the church, much less the world, that it was actually supernatural. Um, There's a lot of talk about unknown tongues. Uh, The Bible mentions an an unknown tongue or tongues of angels, and uh, that's been given as an explanation. But one thing's very clear, it it was not the sign that it was to the people of that day. Well, hundreds, if not thousands of people that day of Pentecost knew something absolutely unprecedented was happening, and here in Acts chapter 2, we find the people uh, very uh, eagerly asking, what is going on? All right, Um, I'd like to speak to you then about this matter of discernment. Um, When divine power is unleashed in the world, when God is doing a miracle, people know it. Everyone will know it, especially in our days of cell phones and recording. Everyone has a camera or video thing. Um, When God unleashes power in the world, it will not only be dramatic and um, astonishing, as it always is. You'll read about it on the front page of the New York Times. Uh, Discernment is called for when people make claims that uh, they can't back up with supernatural power. And so the Bible says repeatedly to test the spirits, for many spirits have gone forth and, and so forth, if you'll excuse me for a second. Uh, we are required to test the spirits and discriminate among the prophets. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. And therefore, God not only gives the gift of prophecy to his saints, he gives the gift of discerning of spirits, 1 Corinthians 12, 10. Paul commands, let two or three prophets speak and let others judge, third person imperative. We are required to take a position whether a prophet is speaking by the Spirit of God or not. If he's speaking by the Spirit of God, we must hear him. 
If he is not, he is a false prophet. And in the old days, was to be taken out and stoned. The prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, that prophet shall die, was the rule in the old days. It's not lightly to be, to be understood that God is speaking through his Holy Spirit by his servants. All right. So then, how should we test the spirits? Well, as I mentioned earlier, Moses did give some instruction. It better come with a sign. And somebody speaking supernaturally by the Spirit of God, it better be according to all that is written before. Paul gives similar instructions to the Galatians. Hey, if even I or, a, or an angel were to give you any other gospel than what you have received, let him be anathema. And he goes back and quotes Moses and uh, the prophets to say, hey, this is the doctrine which you have received receive no other. Testing of spirits in the Bible is a very plain matter of identifying miraculous signs and making sure that they are teaching according to what has been revealed. Moses says there's a case where somebody will give a sign, and it actually comes to pass. And then he says, let's go worship other gods. He says, no, no, yeah, the Lord's testing you to see whether you love him. That prophet shall die. He's got to bring a miracle, a real miracle, and he has to speak according to the word. That's how we test the spirits. But speaking personally, as I went through some years of wrestling with this, some things are just hard to to get a hold of. And I'd like to give you a couple other testimonies. Um, One, the first by Costi Hinn, um, the nephew of the well-known faith healer Benny Hinn, who loves his uncle still and seeks to be an honor to him. He worked with him for a couple years. For example, he traveled with him around the world. He went to his Mumbai, India trip where more than a million people responded to Benny Hinn's uh, healing ministry. His job was to be one of his uncle's personal assistants and to be a catcher during the services. If you don't know what a catcher is, it's not this. It's, we'll explain later. Costi Hinn about, about how he was troubled. One day, he says, I asked my father if we could go heal my friend from school who had lost her hair due to cancer. He replied that we should pray for her at her home, at, pray for her at home rather than going to heal her. He thought that was strange. I thought to myself, shouldn't we be doing what the apostles did if we have the same gift? At that point, I didn't question our ability to heal, but my doubts began to stir about our motives. We did healings in crusades only, where music created an atmosphere, where money changed hands and people approached us with the right amount of faith. But soon other doubts, he said, began to surface. What about all these unsuccessful healing attempts? Well, I learned it was the sick person's fault for doubting God. And he asked, why should we speak in tongues without interpretation? Well, don't quench the spirit, he was told. God can do whatever he wants. But why do so many of our prophecies contradict the Bible? Don't put God in a box. I continued to question. I trusted my family, and we were so successful. Tens of thousands of people followed us. Millions packed our stadiums annually to hear my uncle. We healed the sick, performed miracles, rubbed elbows with celebrities. We got incredibly wealthy. God must be on our side. But then he noticed the kinds of healings, back pain, ringing in the ear, headaches. Well, what about the wheelchairs, you say? Well, the wheelchairs up on the platform, he said, one day he realized they looked all the same. 
They always looked all the same. Venues have their own wheelchairs. Disabled people have their own personal wheelchairs. Well, there were people that were taking off braces and throwing off crutches. And then people showed him photos and videos of those very same people leaving the stadium back in their wheelchair or crutches or braces. He realized that they were, in effect, working the healing lines. And they would only get on the stage if they met a certain criteria. Amputees? No, you're over there. Right? People, people with uh, certain kinds of diseases were out. People with certain kinds of diseases were in. And he realized the people that they were helping, who were giving so generously, were some of the poorest people and the world's most people, vulnerable people in the world. He's got many testimonies now online of how he realized that this movement, which he believed in, um, in this family that he loves, who was apparently healing so many people, he came to the conclusion, we haven't healed anybody. R.C. Sproul was once looking for a job. He prayed, he interviewed over the next six months. He had five different job offers in five different cities, and he wasn't sure what he would do. But he had several friends who were praying for him, and he said the interesting thing is that in, in, all, in each of those five jobs, a different person came to him and said, I've been praying about your job situation, and God told me that you should take the job in this city. And R.C. wondered what to do because each of them said a different city. And how would God expect him to hold down a job, five different jobs in five different cities? Was God really doing that? It was a sixth job that he took, and nobody told him it was God will. God's will. Was he wrong? No. But again, he, he filed it away. And then he met a minister who, who had gone to a Pentecostal meeting where they were speaking in tongues with interpretation, which is the right way it's supposed to go, right? Which is what I grew up in, experienced, or when I was younger. Anyway, the man stood up and said, Enarche in halagos, kai halagos prostantheon, kai theos in halagos, and so forth. Uh, that's John 1 in Greek. Um, the interpretation was then given, which had absolutely nothing to do with, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. These, these difficulties began to accumulate for Sproul until he realized, uh, I, I don't think any of this is, is real. It's a, it's a similar disillusionment that's often difficult to get to. Uh, my, my, my dear boss, we had so many conversations about this. Um, you'll know that the, the people who were involved in the movement, they have an absolute faith that God will heal the person. You actually can't doubt or it won't happen. An absolute faith. And then when the healing happens, I've been with my boss, when he's explained what happened to others, and I know that things did not happen, did not happen, as he so confidently and joyfully explained. And my boss was a, a godly man and a truthful man, but he not only so believed that the God Lord would heal, he believed that God had healed with the same confidence. And I realized that there was something profoundly wrong, and this is the difficulty. Um, I, I mentioned Nabil Qureshi, who came eventually to faith through dreams and visions, You'll know that perhaps as he was dying of cancer, his friends were praying for him, and he had many Pentecostal and charismatic friends, of which he was counted himself a follower as well. 
And he said on his video blog, as I was following it every week, he said, you know, that many of these friends had a word for the Lord from him, that he would be healed of his cancer and that the Lord had promised to heal him. And of course, he died. And so what brought him to faith then in his death uh, disillusioned many who knew that story. So I say to you, there is a procedure for testing the spirits, a procedure that's given right at the very beginning in the Torah, laid down from the first and greatest of God's prophets among his people. You better have a sign. It better be according to the word. Okay? There's no question when God does a sign that it's the work of the Lord. And you must search the scriptures and find out whether these things be true. Practically speaking, if you start asking some questions, looking around honestly, you may also come to the same conclusion as Costi and R.C. And, and others who have given it a try and found themselves discouraged. Now, I've been speaking too long on this matter. I would like to have one other question, and then we'll conclude. Are tongues always to remain in the church? Joel prophesies of a day that would come in the last days that he would pour out his spirit on all flesh, sons and daughters prophesying, young men dreams, old men visions, Men servants and maidservants, I'll pour out my spirit and they'll prophesy signs. But what's this matter of blood and fire and vapor of smoke and the sun into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord? And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. What's that all about? That's a prophecy from Joel chapter 2, if you'd like to take a look there with me. A, uh, a prophecy uh, that was fulfilled, a prophecy that speaks in context of the great and awesome day in which he will bring a fierce judgment upon Jerusalem and Mount Zion. All this will come to pass before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. Joel 28 Joel 2, 28 through 32. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said, among the remnant whom the Lord calls. Other prophetic references, by the way, are to be found. Daniel chapter 9 of the 70 weeks that are going to be determined before the destruction of the city. And one of the things that's going to happen before, as, as that uh, 70 weeks finish is the sealing up of vision and prophecy. Or Paul gives this explanation in 1 Corinthians 14. In the law, it's written, with men of other tongues and other lips, I will speak to this people, and yet they will not hear me, says the Lord. Therefore, tongues are a sign, not to those who believe, but for unbelievers. The sign gift of tongues for unbelievers, in context, he's quoting Isaiah 28, talking about the overthrow of Jerusalem, and God's coming judgment upon the corrupt, unbelieving Jews, he writes there, you who are in Jerusalem shall be trampled down. A fierce Jerusalem was coming, a fierce judgment was coming on Jerusalem and on Mount Zion. And before that great and awesome day of the Lord, there would be a sign, a sign to the unbelievers that it was surely coming to those who knew the law, a sign in the form of tongues. Now, I would put it to you uh, that having been fulfilled, vision and prophecy being sealed up, as Daniel put it here, 
Um, it seems likely, certainly from the reading of the fathers of the early church, that this phenomenon came to a close when that fierce judgment came. And by the way, there were those who were delivered on that day because of this warning. That's another, that's another matter. Fall, it did. Well, brothers and sisters, the church being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, a foundation which you'll know is laid once at the beginning and then a house built, it has been laid for us. Pentecost began a new era, a new era in the history of salvation, an epic distinguished by spiritual power. And as I said to you this morning, every Christian life ought to be lived every day in that power. Now, to be sure, not all Christians agree with what this power means. This is undeniable. We do not agree, for example, that the miraculous gifts continue, miracles uh, perhaps, but not miraculous gifts, the signs of an apostle in some ways. And yet, even if miraculous healing is not granted to Christians today, it certainly seems right that there's such a variety of gifts listed in 1 Corinthians 12, simply in the book of Romans, gifts that also come from the self-same Spirit, even wisdom, knowledge, and faith, all mentioned as gifts of the Spirit, uh, serving, teaching, encouraging, contributing to the needs of others, and many others in Romans 12 come to the fore. The point of Pentecost was never to endow only some people, a select few, taken out of the whole body of Christ with miraculous supernatural powers or a second blessing, but that the whole body of Christ in every member would henceforth be endowed for powerful ministry by the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, even as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though there are many, are one body, so is Christ. And by one Spirit, we were all baptized. By one Spirit, all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slave or free. Made to drink of the one Spirit, for the body is not one member but many. Paul speaks of the universality of the Spirit's empowering every believer for spiritual service and that we have all been baptized with the Spirit into that body for that purpose. And that is the significance of Pentecost. There are no haves and have-nots. Every believer baptized by the Spirit, every believer endowed by the Spirit with gifts by which he may serve. Um, and my concern with charismatic friends is to uh, get them to go and back and see the original purpose of Pentecost, not being something that would merely begin the temporary effusion of certain sign gifts, which wouldn't continue again until the 20th century, or they would miss the point. The pouring out of the Spirit is for every believer. The promise is for you and for your children and to those who are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. Repent and be baptized, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That is my emphasis to you, brothers and sisters. So thank you for wading through me with what was more tonight teaching than preaching. I hope I've shown you that every Christian, therefore, ought to be a Pentecostal in that sense. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we pray that the Spirit-endowed gifts that you have given to each one would be in our lives both recognized and fanned into flame, that with supernatural power we may serve, and that with 
um, effect in the world, we may glorify your holy name. Even as people in that day saw the supernatural power at work in the apostles and in those with him in the upper room, in that case, speaking your word with boldness. Uh, We pray that we too, having received that spirit of boldness, may speak your word with power, if not in other languages, then certainly with conviction in our own. And may that same spirit give grace to the hearer as well as the speaker to to grant to those to whom we speak uh, repentance.